Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome to another edition of Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on managed futures. My name is Niels Kostrup-Larsen. I'm delighted to welcome you to today's conversation with industry leaders and pioneers in managed futures, which is brought to you by CME Group. Today's conversation is taking place at one of the most important events of the year, namely the MFA Network 2019 conference in Miami. It's a great event where hundreds of investors and managers meet in a wonderful setting that allows for some very productive conversations. One of them is my conversation today with Stephen Wilson, who is a senior portfolio manager in the Public Market Group at the Teacher Retirement System of Texas, Trent Webster, who is the senior investment officer at strategic investments for the state board of administration of florida as well as jake barton who is a senior portfolio manager at promos capital which is a multi-family investment firm first of all welcome and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join me for this conversation where we will cover many aspects of the investment process so i thought a really fun way to start would be to go back early on in each of your careers specifically with your experience in the investment world and how that led to where you are today and perhaps also how those experiences along the way have influenced the way you think about investing today. So just to frame our conversation a little bit. And Stephen, why don't we start with you? Tell us about your investment journey and how that led you to where you are today at TRS. Sure, so first thing that comes to mind is 2008, global financial crisis. I was working at a private wealth shop that catered to very wealthy, high net worth individuals. And, you know, I have a very vivid memory of it was, it was, I think it was March, you know, 8th or 9th, 2009. As we all know, it was sort of the troughing point, but nobody knew that then, obviously. And we had a number, we had one client that had just been wanting to sell, you know, get out of their investments for a really long period of time. And, you know, they, they, we had been successful in sort of convincing them not to for a while. And then finally, it was like, I can't take it anymore. I'm done. Go to cash. And then obviously, the rest is history. So whenever later, as I progressed in my career, and I was looking for a, for a more long term place to develop as an investor, you know, going to a place like TRS was sort of a no brainer, because given the duration of capital that we have, we knew we could be the strong hand in the market and not make decisions like that. So you know, being a mid-20s analyst during the financial crisis was a very eye-opening experience. And it, um, you know, it just showed me the importance of, of being methodical and, and being critical and not quick to, to make decisions whenever you're, you know, faced with adversity in investing. Absolutely. And how about you, Trent? You seem to have found your dream place to work right out the gate since you spent quite a few years at Florida State Board. 
Well, yes, being a Canadian citizen, you know, living in Florida has always been a dream, you know, most Canadians. So now that I'm down here, I'm, you know, quite happy. Uh, my background is, is, is that I took a, a, an interest in, in, in investments at a very young age. My father was a stockbroker for many years. And so I had an understanding maybe that other people didn't when I was young. And I started reading books about stocks when I was in high school as a teenager. And I eventually wound up at a firm in uh, Toronto called Spruce Grove Investment Management, where I was working and found a job when I was in my MBA at the Florida State Board of Administration, where I worked for several years as a portfolio manager in equities. The state board actually got caught up in the Enron scandal, not that it was involved in any way with the Enron scandal, but we wound up losing a lot of money in it. And because of that, amongst other things, I transitioned over away from active management, managing my own portfolio, which had done well, into oversight of managers. In 2008, 2009, I was transferred over to this new fandangled creation that they had developed at the state board called Strategic Investments. And Strategic Investments is the asset class where if everything doesn't fit nice and neatly into the other asset classes, that's where it comes. So it's typically hedge funds, a lot of private market structures that aren't private equity or private real estate, and then any other thing, weird thing that's eclectic or different from the rest of the fund. So my background, uh, because of that, you know, growing up reading Buffett as a teenager and starting at Spruce Grove and, and, and the like, is I have a very value-oriented, a contrarian philosophy. And that's actually how one of, the, one of my pathways into managed futures was coming here to the MFA several years ago and experiencing or seeing a lot of pain amongst the CTA managers because they'd gone through one of their worst times ever. And I went, hmm, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And it was around that time when we started to get interested in it. So as an equity fundamental guy with probably the least amount of math around this table, I've actually become one of the biggest proponents of it as a diversifying tool. And it's done okay for us since we started to invest, but it's done better than our other hedge funds. So we're you know, quite happy to be here. And I always come every year to MFA and think it's a great event. Absolutely. I appreciate that. And Jake, I know you spent a few years on the managed future side of the business, but tell us about your early investment experiences and how that shaped sort of your future journey to Promos Capital. Sure. Thank you. If you talk to some trading firms and you ask them what they look for in in a trader, they often like somebody who doesn't actually come from a, from a trading background. They want to have somebody, you know, maybe with some analytical skill sets and so forth, but they want to be able to train them in their way of thinking and their way of viewing the markets. And so in a way, I, my first foray into finance was immediately into a company called Efficient Capital Management, which focuses exclusively on managed futures. So I didn't have to be uh, reprogrammed or forget efficient market theory or anything like that. I was brought straight into managed futures after getting my MBA from Kellogg. So I had you know some financial background, and that was that was helpful. But to your question about you know what other ex- you know financial experiences did I have? My dad had me buy some stock in high school just to kind of see see what that's like, and that was exciting. I like to see the compounding effect of of making an investment. In, public markets and so forth and holding it for the long term. And then I was a nuclear engineer in the Navy actually for seven years. And so I've always had that more analytical problem solving side to me. And then working at efficient efficient capital management, I started in 2007 and 2008. So this is kind of the the heyday, at least for in people's recent memory, like when managed futures really hitting out of the park. That was 
you know, it was JK, come on, join Efficient. We'll learn about managed futures. 2007, 2008 were incredible years. And this is great. You know, every day you walked in, you know, the, all the spreadsheets were lighting up with uh, huge returns. And so it was kind of a, you know, I was, I was convinced this was, this was the place to be if you're going to be in finance. Markets are tanking everywhere except in managed futures. And that was a good way to, to get started in the space. Sure. Absolutely. Now, so to kick things off in a slightly different way, I think it could be really useful if all of you share just a little bit of the investment landscape as you see it right now, sort of early 2019, and how your portfolio is allocated across sort of major asset classes and perhaps talk a little bit about the changes you may or may not have made from what can only be described as a difficult 2018. And Trent, maybe we can start with you and and just see what you how you see the world right now. Right, so just a bit of background. So I oversee roughly $13 billion for the State Board of Administration in Tallahassee, Florida. And what's unique about us, or somewhat unique about us, is that I've got a flexible pool of capital where I'm running an alternative portfolio where I don't have to put any money to work at all if I don't want to. I can, in theory, liquidate the entire portfolio and give it back to the rest of the organization if there's nothing that I like. In practice, that won't happen. But what it does is it creates a mindset in the department or in the asset class that there are things if you do not like or do not want to allocate capital to, you do not have to force it in. So we have this flexible pool of capital and uh, also understanding that being a large state plan, we're about as nimble as a battleship. And so it takes some time for us to, to turn in any appreciable manner. For the last three or four years, I haven't been particularly enamored by credit or equity markets uh, because a lot of the financial engineering and quantitative easing by the central banks and thought it became very, very expensive in risk assets. So we spent the last several years investing in things with low correlation equities such as, such as uh, relative value, managed futures, global macro, and those things. Now we're starting to switch away from that because we're starting to look through, if we're in a bear market, we think we are in a global bear market in risk assets whether the United States is or not, the rest of the world is. And so what we're starting to do is start to get interested in risk assets because we want to be buying things when things get cheaper. So it takes us a while to maneuver, but when asset markets come down, we've started to look through the valley and start planning what we want to do into the bear market. It may or may not happen, we don't know, but we're trying to look out three to five years. And so we're now getting more interested in risk assets and we will do more research in risk assets in higher beta equity. We'll start looking at some credit where we're setting up some structures. We're looking at some riskier infrastructure, say in emerging markets and so a variety of other things. So for the last year or four years, we've been defensive and over the next year or two, we expect to get more aggressive. Okay, interesting. And what about you, Jake? What, how do you see the world right now? As a multifamily investment office, we're sort of somewhere in between maybe like a pension fund or an endowment, which has a really long-term horizon that they can plan strategically around versus like a prop desk or a CTA or doing shorter-term strategies or even some hedge funds where you're, you're really reacting more to, to the markets and thinking on shorter-term horizons. We have some ability to think long-term for certain clients and other clients might have shorter-term needs. And then there's the added complexity of also needing to, to listen to the clients and not, you know, as a fiduciary, you're trying to guide them as the expert in, in, in investing in certain asset classes, but you also have a relationship that you're managing. So if those clients, 
just for whatever reason want out of an asset class, even if it doesn't make sense. You try your best to convince them otherwise, but there's some give and, give and take that needs to be done if you want to maintain that relationship. So it's a tricky balance to play. It's a, a science and an art. So, you know, managed futures, as, as many of us have experienced, has been a tough space to, to be invested in if it, unless you just can put your money in and look away for 10 years or so. I mean, there's there's been a, a tough environment when volatility was lower, things are picking up now, so we'll see how it goes. But it sort of cultivated a little bit of negative sentiment amongst our clients. So while we believe in the diversification there, we have to balance how do our clients feel having this in their portfolio, and many of them have asked to have it reduced. But I think we're starting to get to that turning point where you see you know, equities don't just go straight up all the time. And volatility is something you have to be prepared to, to have a response to in your portfolio and, and also in an uncorrelated and diversified way. So I think we're reaching a position where we can start engaging our clients again and discussing managed futures and uncorrelated assets. I think they might be a little more receptive to hearing it when they've seen what's going on in, in equity markets. So that's one, one way we're, we're positioning ourselves. And also, I think we do think there are drawdowns are going to happen. We don't know when. We don't know if there's going to be a recession in you know, 2020 or who knows when. But we want to have cash available to respond when valuations reach a level where we think uh, it's attractive to enter. And so we're trying to be invested in things that are yielding where we can build up a cash position because cash finally is actually returning something to clients. So it's actually not a bad thing to make two and a half, three percent in a very, very low risk position in cash. So we're looking at private debt. We've done some real asset investing that's that's yielding something. We're trying to be in spaces that aren't correlated, but that's to build up the cash so that we could respond when when markets tank. But then there's also those you know things that we want to be proactive about. Like managed futures, you can't wait until there's a move necessarily because often it's sort of like a long gamma profile, and you, you don't want to wait till it happens and then say, "Oh, we should have we should have been in." Because that's what every, you know we see, saw the biggest growth in the CTA space sort of in 2009. Well, the return <laughs> wasn't the best time to invest if you, somebody had been more proactive ahead of that and seen what was happening in. in mortgage space and so forth, it would have been prudent to have been invested before that. So so you can't always wait and, and be reactive. Sure. No, absolutely. Stephen, what does your portfolio look like right now and, and in this sort of environment we're in right now? Sure. So at Texas Teachers, we've got about $12 billion in hedge funds. And the hedge fund group has the, the luxury of really saying, we're just going to go hunt for where the best alpha is and we'll let the other smart people at the pension determine which betas are the best combinations to have at any one point in time. So my job isn't necessarily finding what's the what's the right, you know, equity market to be in necessarily or, or somewhere else, but it's really to find uh, differentiated models of investments that generate orthogonal returns to the rest of the portfolio and to betas. And so what we've been focused on recently is, is finding areas of the hedge fund market where we can allocate capital, where there is some sort of complexity premium to understanding that type of investment, and where are there managers that have very significant barriers to entry that, are, that aren't conceptual, the real things in the ground. So some of the areas we've been focusing on within the hedge fund portfolios, we've been making a lot of hires in Asia. Uh, those markets are less efficient. They are earlier in their development, and there are there's still a lot of people there that have the capabilities and skills to to extract a lot of value out of those inefficient markets. 
we've made uh, we've made a lot of headway into things like volatility arbitrage. That's an area that that is not well understood, and we think we can uh, add value to the portfolio by selecting managers that do that well. You know, for example, we created a reinsurance portfolio in 2013 and have recently made big moves into retrocession, which is a type of reinsurance. I believe there's a complexity premium there. And then maybe more relevant to our discussion on managed futures, we've been in a pretty long process of transferring the bulk of our risk into alternative CTAs, which has been an area where people are, are able to sustain the, gen- the return that they're generating much better than it seems like in, in the traditional program. So um, fortunately, like I said, I don't have the hard job of forecasting betas, uh, but we do recognize that that you can't just scatter shot into hedge fund land and pick, you know, the you know, the blue chip folks and think that you're going to have a sustained advantage. It takes a lot of work and that's what we've been working on. Now, before we move on and perhaps a little bit as a follow-up question, I'm interested to know, as you go about sort of structuring these portfolios, what are the core beliefs or principles that govern how you do your asset allocation? And maybe we can start with you, Jake, on, on this one. Are there any sort of core beliefs that you have that you that play in a major role in, in, in the way you structure the asset allocation? Yes, absolutely. You know, we like to think that we're opportunistic, and it's always hard to do because it might might sound like you know, a crystal ball or something, and uh, it, it's hard to do. But we try to look and see where, where are we in the business cycle, where are we in the credit cycle, where, where are we in the various cycles that whatever that asset class may go through, where are we in that process, and is now a good time or a bad time, or are we not sure? If we have strong conviction that maybe this is a good time, a space has been beat up and there aren't any underlying macroeconomic or major global reasons that it's that the valuations are depressed and should continue to go down but but just in terms of looking at regular ebbs and flows and in, in prices we try to evaluate if it's a good time or not and, and buy cheap and sell high if we can so that's one thing that we look for we do like to we we kind of agree with the smaller is better in most cases it's not always going to be the case but with managers sometimes you find the smaller managers they're hungrier they, they're really trying to prove themselves. They're 100% devoted to their product. They're not worried about their fifth house or their yacht. Or you know, you know, Once they've made it big and they're bringing in the money, it brings other com- complexities to their life and also to their business. And then there's partners, partnership and succession plan. There's all these things that can, can muddy the waters with them just focusing on what they do best. And also when you're smaller, you don't have as many slippage issues. You can kind of get in and out of markets much more efficiently and, and cleanly. You don't, you're not leaving a footprint wherever you go. So that's another thing that we, we look at is the size of the manager. We really value ethics and moral behavior in our managers. So that's something that we try to spend, spend a lot of quality time with the people that we invest with to really understand them uh, as best we can or have really strong strong references from people that we trust. I think that's important. There's a lot of brilliant people out there who can be brilliant at making money, but they can also be brilliant about pulling the wool over your eyes. So we have to take that into account. I think generally we, we're, we're sort of in between markets are efficient and inefficient and trying to find where they are inefficient. Can we capitalize that in, in some way? And why is it inefficient? Why is there a dislocation? Why is there an arbitrage opportunity there? Why is this a niche space that few have discovered yet. If you can find something like that and understand the economic principles underlying the opportunity that's there, if it's all legitimate and, and it comes from sound economic theory, we try to find things that are 
lesser discovered areas that aren't played in as well and, and find the best person or the best team in that space to partner with, to come alongside, to try to extract some value. I'm sure there are m- many more. We, we put a lot of thought into this. I don't want to monopolize the, the, the conversation, but that's probably something we spend quite a, quite a bit of time on is, is what is our philosophy and how do we want to be good stewards of the capital that our clients mm-hmm. clients trust us with. And diver- I mean, there's the ob- obvious easy ones like diversification. We want to most of our clients come to us with a great deal of money already that they have worked hard to obtain or to maintain, and we don't want to take high risks or speculative bets or concentrated positions uh, with that money. So we want to be as thoughtful and diversified as possible to make sure that we're only growing and compounding what they've already brought to us. Sure. I mean, very interesting. Trent, do you have sort of core beliefs that you follow in, in your way? Yeah. So, so in, in our asset allocation we pretty strongly believe that markets tend or trend towards efficiency over time. In some markets, efficiency can be bang immediate, and sometimes it can go for months and months, if not longer, for years in inefficiency. I think that one of the gravest mistakes, and I say this as somebody who majored in economics and got an honors degree in finance, that one of the gravest mistakes that academia ever made was assuming that and and trend communicating that human beings were like automatrons that, that instantly calculated all the volatilities, whether as individuals or groups, to always get to the right answer on pricing. And we fundamentally do not believe that. It does happen, it certainly happens over time because if it didn't, then capitalism wouldn't work, right? And sometimes it happens immediately. Sometimes markets are highly efficient. But oftentimes, human beings are human beings, and human beings come to behavioral aspects and traits which create these inefficiencies which allow opportunities to arise. The way we implement that is, is that, again, being a large plan with several billion dollars that moves relatively slowly, we look out three to five years and then implement a, a value-slash-contrarian Philosophy. So in, in terms of asset prices, valuation is not all that hard to figure out if something's cheap or expensive. But from a contrarian standpoint, in strategies where, say, it, the contrarianness isn't uh, represented by valuation, you can see that in capital flows. So is an industry out of favor or in favor? So, for example, again, one of them is on managed futures. We started looking at this, I think, in space, I think it was in 2015 when this this was really getting hit pretty hard. And I think that in managed futures, it's a really good example is that this is not a strategy you want to go into when things are great and they've had several years of outperformance. Like Jake said earlier, after 2009, you want to go into it where there's been a lot of pain in it. And if you go back and look in the, using, say, the Credit Suisse index, the managed futures index, we're in the midst of the seventh pullback of you know mid-teens returns in managed futures and this is dragging on a little bit longer than usual but at some point in time you know things will change the greatest tra- trader i had ever studied is jesse livermore and he has a he has a quote that and i'm probably going to mess this up a little bit but he said you know wall street never changes the pockets never change the stocks never change the suckers never change but wall street never changes because human behavior doesn't change and so we try to when we're implementing our asset allocation, we try to take advantage of those anomalies in human behavior, which gives rise into to, uh, discrepancies in valuation and capital flows. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Stephen, I want to hear your views on this and and any core beliefs that TRS has in Sure. I mean, I mean at the very core, our core belief is that we have a mission and the mission is that when the teachers of Texas retire that they are able to do so with the dignity and the resources that they deserve after, you know, many times 30 to 40 years of public service in the pursuit of educating people of Texas. I mean, so that's a really important thing. We're always talking about it. It weighs on us as we work every day. So that's that's sort of the backdrop. And we believe that, you know, through a prudent implementation of a hedge fund portfolio, it's a critical part of the asset allocation that allows you to mitigate some of the rougher times whenever, you know, risk, risk premium expand, market sell off, that kind of thing. So from a long-term perspective, Having having something like a hedge fund portfolio allows you again to be that strong hand in the market, like I mentioned earlier. That being said, the 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 goals of the portfolio are to be zero beta, as I mentioned, outperform HFRA, outperform Treasuries, and to be an absolute return type type vehicle. So whenever we think about like how do we make sure that that we meet those goals, we have to set up partnerships that are you know, meaningful both to our portfolios and to the managers. We need to be significant enough that we're able to drive economics in our favor. And uh, we also need the investment to be significant enough to the portfolio that it drives enough risk to be, you know, noticed, right? Otherwise, it's just, you know, it's not necessary. So in general, when we're constructing our portfolios, we're looking for structural alpha that's uncorrelated to betas and to the rest of the hedge fund book. And we seek to balance that among each other so that you have sort of a, a holistic portfolio of, of orthogonal return that's not overly exposed to any one risk factor. Now, I don't know. This question is probably more relevant for, for you, Trent, and, and for you, Stephen. And I don't know much about the specifics of, of your uh, two plans, but I'm curious a little bit whether you have experienced this or whether you know from other plans how the level of funding of a pension plan if it's very underfunded or if it's close to be fully funded, whether that impacts the decisions or the risks that they take, meaning do people who are very underfunded take kind of, you know, we're going to go full in and, and, and really hope to to make it up or, or may, does it make them more cautious because we can't afford to lose any more? I mean, is that something you've come across? And as I said, I don't know the specific of, of your plans, but, but it's a big issue in, in the US, I think, and in Europe for that matter about pension plan funding? It's an excellent question. As it pertains to the state board, uh, the answer is no. We are one of the highest funded pension plans in the United States, I think around 85 or 86%. But this is going to be an issue, without a doubt. There is a pension crisis coming in this country, probably sometime in the next decade or so. And there's gonna have to be some very hard decisions made whether that's at the political level or at the asset level or at the recipient level, something's going to have to change. And it might be that for funds which are underfunded but aren't so far gone that they'll never come back, uh, which some pension plans are at, that maybe you do have to change the asset allocation and maybe you do have to take more risk. I don't know. I'm not fortunately, I don't have to answer that question at least not right now. But without a doubt, there's an issue coming in the future sometime down the road. And it's a question that you've asked, which is probably about 10 years 
ahead of its time because it is a question that people will be asking in the not too distant future from now. Yeah. What what what's your experience? Here? Yeah, I'm I'm lucky just like Trent right. where we not only are we in a, in a good spot relative to a lot of our peers from a funded status, we have a fantastic governance structure that allows us the flexibility to to be insulated from you know, political type uh, things that that can interfere with other plans. I will say, talking to some of my peers at other funds, a lot of times when you get to a level where the funded status is so low that there is clearly something that needs to be done, what ends up happening is you get this very vicious cycle where someone new comes in, they say they can fix it, it's too hard, they don't get it done. Three years later, somebody else comes in, they say they can fix it, and then you're just constantly in a state of trying to, re, you know, restart. And it's kind of like, you know, if you ever, you know, if you've got a favorite college football team or NFL team, if you get a new coach every three years, you're not going to the Super Bowl. It's just not happening, right? So once the funded level gets too low, you know, people run a real risk of it becoming a toxic environment, and then it never gets fixed. So, I mean... Fortunately, I don't have experience with that, but I have talked to people where that can be, where that's been problematic. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks for that. Okay, so let's turn to some more specifics. And you have already sort of indicated and guessed which asset class or strategy that I'm keen on exploiting or exploring a little bit further. And that is, of course, managed futures. And I want to kick it off to talk a little bit about how that fits into your strategy, even though we've touched upon it a little bit earlier on. A couple of years back, also here in Miami, we did a podcast with three of the largest consultants in the industry, and I'm sure you know all of them. And one of the things we discussed was that what they thought was the optimal allocation to manage futures or trend following very often was much higher than what the pension plans and, and other institutional investors are able to do in, 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 in sort of in a practical matter. And also, there's never been a white paper written, as far as I'm aware, that does not prove the point that there is a benefit of blending managed futures with stocks and bonds. And of course, we know from other conversations in this podcast series with Calstas that they have embraced the strategy in a quite a healthy way. Uh, so I'm interested to hear sort of what you're doing specifically in this space at this time and, and what your thoughts are in general. I know, you, let's start with you, Jake, you touch upon it already a little bit, but, you know, I'll just follow through with my sort of uh, line of, of thought here. So, Sure, thank you. The, uh, well, academically, you can look at numbers, you can go back through history. I know AQR has done a bunch of studies on this, putting together some synthetic markets going back, you know, close to 100 years. And academically, you can see a managed future should have a very significant piece of, of anybody's, of a well-diversified portfolio, as I think part of the language they like to use. And that's true. It's very difficult because of the volatility in the space. And what, what does an allocation of managed futures look like? There are a lot of different ways to, to achieve that. And that volatility for people who are doing weekly meetings or quarterly reporting or whatever, whatever the cycle is, a lot of investments are probably best just to to be made and then and then you look away and, and, and go carry on with the rest of your life for five to ten years and then come back and look at them. But we're just such a short time frame society now. You know, you can have everything you can, you know, be on vacation and pull out your cell phone and, and look at any market in the world you want to. And I think that's bred this culture of obsessing over every tick that happens in the markets and to a detriment, right? There's some advantages to having that kind of visibility into the markets, but I think it, it doesn't make people better investors necessarily. So that's one 
one part, thing that makes, I think, having the pro- having properly sized allocation to manage futures is problematic is that some people perceive it as being more volatile. And sometimes it can be, depending on how you structure it. And that's that's hard to look at on a frequent basis. I, it's something that came to mind while, while these guys were talking to, to is people heard the phrase like, well, correlation is great to, you know, having uncorrelated assets is great, except when there's a crisis and then everything correlates to one. And it's easy just to say that and not really think about what, what that means. And I was having a conversation with our CIO the other, I think it was last week, and we were pondering this thing. And, and really diversification, we think, falls on a spectrum. So if markets are calm, then the market participants are happy to differentiate between Shell and Exxon. You know, they're happy to differentiate between Brent and WTI, right? So when markets are calm, there's a lot of differentiation and diversification that can be seen in things that otherwise might seem to be fairly similar. They're willing to go to the details and say, well, how are these two things different, even though they're in very similar industries? Once markets start to get a little bit more volatile now, the markets will differentiate between an energy stock and a tech stock or a tech stock and utility. And so as as the volatility increases or the calmness starts to, to break down and, and things become a little more hectic, the markets look further and further away for what diversification looks like until you do have all assets seeming to correlate to one, including stocks and bonds suddenly are both being sold off at the same time, which academically people might say, well, that shouldn't happen. And so what do you have left when every, you know, we saw this in 2008, I saw so many charts during that time period where all these very diversified asset classes all had the same profile on the chart. They all fell off a cliff. And what didn't do that was managed futures. And I think there's just some real valuable aspects of it that you can trade pretty much any global macro theme in the world that you can conjure up, you can find a futures contract to trade that and on a very safe exchange with great counterparties, great liquidity. So when markets are falling apart and a lot of asset classes start to correlate to one and volatility spikes, you can, within managed futures, very easily find things that are going the other direction that make great hedges or make great, great alternatives to building that diversified portfolio. So being conscious of that you know, it's, it's when markets have been, so take all the three rounds of quantitative easing and extraordinary low interest rates put out by the government, you have kind of this outside force acting on the market suppressing volatility that created this calmness. And so it was hard to really structure uh, diversification the way preferred to do it. But when that, when that period ends and we're starting to see that volatility come back again, I think managed futures is going to start, you know, crying out for a larger piece of of the asset allocation pie because it's just mathematically and conceptually it it's a better place to to have have your money when everything else is correlated sure how about you Stephen? is spanish futures part of your lineup sure absolutely so in the absolute return hedge fund portfolio at trs ctas are about 12 percent of the capital which doesn't sound like a lot but if you look at the amount of risk that they contribute to the portfolio it's at any given point in time between 35 and 40 percent. And that's really in recognition that it's not a profile that we get naturally at the rest of the trust. And it is extremely diversifying for reasons that, that we've, we've discussed and people know. That being said, I, I think there's a good way to have a managed futures allocation. And then there's a, there's a sort of lazy bad way to do it. The lazy bad way is, is as everybody knows, just 
finding the thing that did well recently. I mean, as we know, most managed futures investments are not greater than one sharp. They tend to be between 0.5 and 0.8. And if someone had a plus 25% year last year, they're probably going to revert to a 0.5 to 0.7 sharp and you're not you're not going to get much, you know, going forward. So you really just have to I like the way Jake put it, just sort of like invest in it and then kind of come back in a few years. But you still need a few principles to do that. And the way that we've done it is to have as few managers as you need, but also to diversify across as many facets as you can in order to make sure that you pick up that one environment where some random market's trending really hard and that, that particular manager picks it up and you get you get some nice performance because as we know, there can be long droughts between highly trending markets. So the way that we've done it is we've restricted the managers that we invest in to those that don't pick up equity beta because that would go against the goals of the portfolio. The longer you set your trend program, the more equity beta you pick up for fairly obvious reasons. So we've kept it really inside sort of a a three-month time horizon for the managers that we have. And then at that point, we've, we've tried to have sort of faster managers, slower managers within that time frame, and then diversify across as many markets as we humanly can, right? So typical futures-based CTA might bring you 150, 200 markets. We moved pretty heavily into the alternative market CTAs going down cap, so having a lot of capital there. And that, end, that end adds in an incremental probably three or 400 markets. And, you know... 2017 was a case in point where futures trend following didn't do that great, but there was a huge trend in in credit that the alternative market CTAs picked up in CDS, and those managers were all up close to 20%. So the way that we've done it is stick to trend following because it's a known and understand it, understood risk profile. We know what it's going to do. It's not a black box. And then have as many different differentiations as you as you think you need without doubling up. Like we don't want people doing the same thing. So that's how we've done it. Sure. Fantastic. Great. And Trent, how does managed futures fit into your portfolio at the moment? Yeah, I'll, I'll make two comments. The first one is as it pertains specifically to the state board. In, in my group, in the strategic investments asset class, we divide up the alternative investments into five groups. We've got equity, we've got debt equity, real assets, diversifying strategies, flexible mandates, and managed futures falls into what we call diversifying strategies. That also includes global macro, relative value, insurance. And so these are things which should have a very low correlation to equity. That's currently about 20% of, of my book. And eventually we want to get it up to 30 to 40% over time. So we think that that's one of, one, of, one of my, I've got multiple policy objectives. And one of them is to diversify the FRS and, or the Florida retirement system. And that's the, that's the easiest way to do it. The other comment that I'll make is more on a broader one is is that some of the changes that the managed futures industry has undergone over the last two or three years is enormously beneficial, I think, to the managers and to the industry unto itself. And by offering a stripped down, more beta version of trend following at a much lower price point, it's just it the, it just opens up the possibilities enormously. Because there is no reason why a large pension plan shouldn't have a sizable allocation to managed futures. And if you think of someone like Calsters, which I think is 9% in this diversifying strategy, that's a huge amount of money of which managed futures is part of that. And there's no reason in my mind why large pension plans can't have, you know, 5, 10 or 15% allocations 
Perhaps the only one being is, well, how big can the market really be? I don't really know, but the first movers that you'll get in there will do very, very well. So if, 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 if I were somebody sitting on the other side of the table in managed futures with some of these big funds, I would be a I would set on educating the investment community on the benefits of managed futures and going to the consultants and going to the plans and telling them that this is this is why it's beneficial to you and why you should be investing in it. Plans already know this intuitively because they've got a big allocation to bonds. And bonds, which are going to return very little over the next several years, provides a diversifying element to a portfolio. So you could do the same thing with managed futures. Just on a, on a, risk, on a risk basis, the work we've done says that you should have 30 to 40 percent in managed futures. That's probably too high. Well, it is too high. But whatever number is, it's nowhere near that. And so I think there's a, an enormous opportunity for the industry to take advantage of, of what they're offering. If we broaden the scope and say, okay, let's not just talk about managed futures, we broaden it to sort of hedge funds overall. We know that hedge funds in, and, and managed futures often are in the press and, and not always for, for with, the, with the best headlines. I mean, does, does this change in terms of the way you, you, you look at that? Or I mean, do you actually prefer more specifically kind of managed futures trend following because that has a specific role? Or is it really something where hedge funds, you, you still like to have that as a, I mean, obviously you work specifically with hedge fund, but in, in, a, in a broader scope of, of, of sort of the pension allocation? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, I mean, hedge, what's a hedge fund anyway? It's just a fee arrangement, it's a common fee arrangement. Managed futures are definitely on the more diversifying end. Mm. You know, I think if you looked at, if you looked at the universe of equity long short managers in Q4, I think they all had beta one, right? I mean, it was, you're not getting as much diversity from that end of hedge fund land as you are getting, you know, from people that are doing things like, you know, fixed income relative value, managed futures, insurance is certainly not, not equity sensitive, you know, volar, that kind of stuff. Like that end of it is certainly much more useful from a, from a diversification standpoint at the, tr- at a trust level than, you know, an equity long short manager. Sure. Anything you want to add to that or? Again, you wouldn't not invest in something for, for the wrong reasons. And I, I think that a lot of investors make a mistake by creating this bucket called hedge funds. Well, it, you, there, it, to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, but nobody has ever had a conversation on whether or not they want to invest in custodial public markets funds, right? There's never, ever been that discussion. But that I've just described to you the equity markets and the bond markets, right? Well, people think, well, equity and bonds, those are different things. Why would you group them together? Well, the hedge fund industry is so much more diverse if you look at it from that perspective, because mm-hmm. equity long, short, and structured credit and global discretionary global macro and CTAs, it's, it's just a wide array of risk factors. So the way we think about it is that we don't have a hedge fund program but we have a program that includes hedge funds and instead look at a wide variety of different strategies and risks and how does it all fit into the portfolio. So I think the hedge fund industry is under pressure for a variety of different reasons, but I think if people approach the hedge fund industry in in a way that can be shown to be beneficial and additive, 
to a portfolio and not just in terms of, of equity returns, I, I think it has a future. But I don't think most plans are like that because I think there's just, and you're starting, you're seeing, you see it shifting away a bit, but there's still, you know, too many equity long short funds, in my opinion, and not enough managed futures fund. And I tell you that as a, as a diet on the wall equity guy, <laughs> you, I, I think that it's more beneficial just broadly having strategies in hedge funds that you can't get cheaper elsewhere, which you easily can in equity and in bond markets. So a, a, kind of a funny anecdote about that. When our former CIO came in the mid-2000s, he wanted to ramp up the amount of hedge funds we had in our asset allocation. And the state legislature in Texas took notice and said, okay, well, we want to have like a limit on the amount of hedge funds. So initially we had a 5% limit that eventually got expanded to 10. But then everyone was like, okay, we have a 5% limit on hedge funds. Now what's a hedge fund? Yes. And so, and there's not a definition, right? So we had to create a nine point definition that, that says what a hedge fund is. And it's, you know, I think Trent's totally right. Like a lot of things fall into hedge funds that, you know, you need less of that. You need more on the more diversifying end. That being said, there's a reason that we're that a lot of people are having conversations about the role of managed futures in their portfolio. Because look at the look at the SG trend index, which is pretty representative. It's flat for the last ten years, right? So the question everybody has to ask themselves is, what's you know, if I believe this is going to be some kind of hedge, what is the carry that I'm going to get? Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it, you know, flat? So that's, and I, that's the tough thing I, right now. I'm curious to go kind of off script a little bit when you say that. And that is, do you think that we as an industry has done a bad job in trying to sell trend following? For example, you mentioned the, 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 the SG trend index as a hedge. Or should we have done better in actually saying, no, it's not a hedge. It's an uncorrelated strategy. And that means that it's not always going to be negative correlated. Well, the latter is certainly the most truthful thing, right? Because if you understand what a trend follower is doing, which is the most normal expression of a managed future, you, like, you know if you have a very sharp instant reversal in risk assets, you're going to lose money. It's not a hedge. That being said, I'm pretty sure there was a lot of managers out in 2010, 2011, 2012 saying, oh, look what we did in 2008, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to totally excuse the allocators for, for looking at it as a hedge when people, no, I think it's the industry. Yeah. Saying, yeah, yeah. Maybe people weren't saying it's a hedge, but yeah. if you go around saying, look, 2008 up yeah. 15%, you know, yeah. okay, that's what I'm hearing. Yeah. No, that's why I think it, the industry, yeah. maybe we should have done it well, better. Well, let, let, let me yeah. counterpoint to that. So the last 10 years, you're right. They, they haven't performed all that well. Well, from, 1966 to 1982, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, I think, went up one point. You know, so for 16 years, the Dow Industrials was flat. And you put dividends in there and a few other indices, you know, it's a little little more than that. But stocks for long periods of time have, have been also been disappointing. And so what you're really looking at is, is that in 2000, you know, the, you know, at this time in 2009, you were at the nadir of the market. Like literally we were like a month and a half away from bottoming and the worst financial crisis we've been in. And the prior year stocks were down 40% and managed futures were up 18. So you were measuring it from a high. Today we're at a, we're at a low for just coming out of a low for managed futures. So what you're looking at is endpoint sensitivity. 
right? So you're, you're right. But you know, the truth is, is that in the real world, that's what boards are looking at. That's mm. what consultants are looking at. I said, oh my gosh, there's been no return over 10 years. But time will shift, you know, and you either, if you believe in this or if you don't believe, I happen to believe in it. Mm. But I'm hearing a lot. I, I am hearing people throwing the towel in mm. on these types of trend, just basic trend following strategies. That makes me kind of bullish on mm-hmm. them. Yeah, I agree. Now would be a terrible time to take yeah. take down this part of your of your portfolio. That being said, you have to be able to stay in the game. Yes. Yeah. Right. And you have to have some some prospect of not just printing year after year of negative. I mean, I don't know what the last three years has been negative every year for SG Trend. Yeah. You know, people, you're gonna you're gonna if you're a firm and you're doing that, you're gonna go under. And that's true. But I would also say to that, that it, that is true for the index, but you'll find some trend followers who've actually done, done well. And that's exactly, yeah. When we started investing in, in 2015, we're up. Yeah. That's say three or 4%. It's not blow the lights out, but that's with our, that's not far off. In fact, it's a little higher than the rest of our hedge fund portfolio. So, you know, it's. And, and to your point, trend, um, you, you mentioned a, a kind of an old example of equities being flat for a long period of time. Uh, I think this week uh, there was in in the news um, an article about Italian wow. Italian equities that actually have returned zero yeah. in the last twenty five years. Think, and I think the UK market, the FTSE, is yeah. the same for the last eighteen or nineteen years. It's low yeah. returns. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.